This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College. Join them for two weeks digging up dinosaur bones from the Jurassic period in Northwest Colorado this summer. For details, go to cncc.edu slash dinodig. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Hello and welcome to I Know Dino. I'm Garrett. And I'm Sabrina. And today in our 373rd episode, we have a bunch of news, including an embryo in an egg, which people have been talking about a lot Mm -hmm. lately, maybe a little bit ago, but we're going to get really into it. And a new ankylosaur again. Guess who's covering that one? Yeah. We also have an interview with Sibu Siso Biela, which is fantastic. Mm Mm-hmm. And we have Dinosaur of the Day, Baypiosaurus. Lots of good stuff. There is so much good. I'm excited about this episode. And also, we just finished our 2021 year-end survey, which we've been hounding everybody to give us responses for. I think we had 137 responses, which is great because then we know that we're going to get a good representation of lots of different viewpoints and Mm -hmm. what people like. So thank you to everyone who answered and for all the kind words. A lot of people put in kind words where they could, which was really awesome and heartwarming. Those are fun to read. Unfortunately, since it's anonymous, we can't answer questions directly. Some people asked questions in various places. But I'm going to go through the questions that came up more than once and also talk about some of our planned changes from what the answers to the survey questions were. So first of all, almost everyone said they wanted us to cover more overviews of dinosaur science. So we're going to do that. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's a pretty simple one. (laughs) Check. Yep. So yeah. So this year there will be more of that coming. There were also a lot of requests for more interviews, which is good because we've got a lot of great interviews coming up, including in this episode. Mm -hmm. Sorry that our interview rate dropped off a bit last year. We just weren't doing as many interviews, and I think people noticed. So (laughs) we'll try to stay on top of the interviews this year. And the only other consistent request was for other prehistoric creatures being covered on the show, which is currently our next goal on Patreon. So I think it's when we hit 250 patrons, we'll start doing that at some patron levels. Right, as bonus content. Yep. So that's in the works, hopefully this year as well. And then some other notes, more the Q&A part of it. I highly recommend using a podcast app to listen to the podcast, meaning, you know, like the Apple one that's built in or Podcast Addict or there's tons of podcatchers out there. I think even, you know, Spotify, there's a million of them. They pretty much all allow you to speed us up if you think we talk too slow. <laughs> or a couple of years ago, I put in the question, do we talk too slow or too fast? And the main answer was, you're fine. Don't worry about it. <laughs> but I know for me, at least, I always want to listen to podcasts as fast as possible because there are a lot of them I want to listen to. So that feature of being able to speed up 
The dialogue is great. Get through more episodes quickly. Yeah, definitely use that if you think we talk too slow or if you're just trying to get through our massive back catalog. There's also a pretty good balance of people that think there's either too much banter or not enough banter in the show now, Mm -hmm. which is good because previously for the last five surveys, people have always said we were too dry and not enough banter. And now it seems like we've finally found that balance after six years. Just got to stay at (laughs) this rate. Yeah. So we'll try not to add more banter for the people that don't want more banter and et cetera. People are also pretty split on episode length, which I think is a good sign. You know, some people are like, the episodes are too long. The other half of the people are, the episodes are too short, which means it's probably about right. (laughs) So you can listen to us either on double time or regular speed. Yeah, or you could slow it down too. You could go down to half speed. Oh, yeah. If our episodes are too fast and we're talking too fast, then really that would be perfect. As far as episode numbers, Apple doesn't allow us putting episode numbers in anymore, which is why they are gone. But we did create a web page to make everything really easy to find, hopefully. That's inodino.com slash episode hyphen index, or you just go to inodino.com. I think it's the first link on the top left. It says episodes. episodes. Yeah. So I keep that up to date. And so does Sabrina. It has all of the interviews we've ever done listed there. It has all the Dinosaur of the Days listed and then a link to the show notes for every single episode as well. Yep. So you can see what news items were covered. Yep. And in relation to that, a few people requested links for the papers we mentioned in our episodes and the show notes includes links to every single journal article and other news story that we ever talk about in each episode. So you can get every single link (laughs) to everything in there. We do that because we figured people would want to look at these papers, especially when they're open access and you want to go look at pictures or something like that. Mm -hmm. Definitely recommend doing that. You can also get a link to the show notes from the description for each episode. So in whatever you're listening to your podcast in, there should be a description field. And the first thing in that should be inodino.com slash episode 373 Apiosaurus for this one. And then if you click on that, that will have all of those details because you can't, in some descriptions, you can't fit in a ton of links. So when we have like 20 news items, we don't want to just bombard it with links. So yeah, if you go to our website, you get the full show notes with all the links. As far as pictures go, we do post pictures that are relevant for almost every episode on our Discord server in the episode discussion channel. So check that out if you're interested in images. We are also trying to get better about describing what the dinosaurs looked like that we're talking about. Yeah, yeah, definitely. That is something we're working on. And that's all I have. So it was a, no huge mistakes we were making. There wasn't a, a huge spike in people hating something about our show. Most people said they liked it. And those are the things people wanted to change. So we'll change those things. Awesome. Well, thank you, everybody, for your feedback. It- definitely helps us every year yeah i mean sabrina and i talk about dinosaurs all the time with each other the podcast is because we want to share that love of dinosaurs with everyone else so we try to craft the show to what people like so thank you all for telling us what you like and what you don't like and we'll continue to try to make the podcast that everyone enjoys Mm -hmm. so before sabrina starts the news i'm going to thank our new patron and that's ermal as well as our other patron shout-outs for the week, who are Ellen, Amato Titan, Randy in Squim, John Heck, Nicholas, Shane Kylosaurus, Scott, 
Greg, and Albertosaurus. Yes, thank you so much. And as Garrett mentioned with the survey, hopefully we get enough patrons soon that we can give you all that bonus content. And now jumping into the news. Yeah, you've got a very exciting news item. I'm excited to hear about this. Yes. So this is about baby Ingliang, an embryo in a fossilized dinosaur egg that was recently discovered in Ganzhou City, Jiangxi province in China in the Hukou Formation. The paper was published by Lita Xing and others in iScience, and it's open access, so anybody can read it. It's a very well-written paper. Ooh, and see the pictures? Yes. And the title, the title kind of says it all. It's an exquisitely preserved in ovo theropod dinosaur embryo sheds light on avian-like pre-hatching postures. So maybe you did hear about this because, as Garrett mentioned, there were a lot of headlines around this one and images, and it was really cool to see all the stuff going around. Yeah, this is one of those. Every once in a while, there's a dinosaur news item where half of the people we know that have no interest in dinosaurs send us text messages. <laughs> it's like, have you seen this thing? <laughs> yeah. This was definitely one of those. <laughs> So this embryo, it's really cool. It looks like a baby curled up in the egg. It's a elonga to lithid egg. Okay, so like an oviraptor type, oviraptorosaur? Yes, an oviraptorid oviraptorosaur, <laughs> to be specific. Oops. Yes. <laughs> and it's one of the most complete non-avian dinosaurs found so far. Like the skeleton is nearly complete. Something like just the right forelimb is missing. Oh, okay. Yeah. I mean, if you're going to find a completely preserved dinosaur, no better way than it was in its original packaging. It's like finding an action figure in the original packaging. <laughs> yeah, something <laughs> like that. And this one, too, is pretty late stage in the embryonic phase. So you get a lot of details. Nice. Now, this embryo, it's from the late Cretaceous around 72 to 66 million years ago. And as I mentioned, it was an oviraptorid oviraptorosaur, and it's toothless. What's really unique is its posture. It's got its head below the body and the feet are on either side, and its back is curled up at the bottom of the egg, which is known as the blunt pole of the egg, and that's just the part that's less pointy. And this posture is similar to modern birds in embryos, like what we see with chickens. Hmm. Now, for birds... It's related to this thing called tucking, which is, quote, behavior controlled by the central nervous system that helps with hatching. And if you want to know more about tucking, listen to the end because I've got a fun fact about it. Oh, yeah, you're doing the fun fact this week, too. Mm -hmm. It also came from this paper, but seemed fun facty. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so it's possible that this tucking behavior started in non-avian theropods. And before this was found, we thought that it was something that only modern birds did, or avian theropods, I guess, avian dinosaurs. The specific position in the egg? Yes. Yeah, I'm looking at the picture of it now. It is interesting because the way it's curled up reminds me of like any, if you've ever candled an egg or seen, you know, an egg hatch with a bird in it, it's in that position. But then... The egg is really long. That's why they're called the longitulithus mm -hmm. <laughs> eggs. And like half of the egg is tail. So it's like <laughs> it's curled up in the top two thirds of it. And then the bottom third is just a tail. I never thought about that before, that maybe the reason those elongatulithid eggs are so much longer than modern bird eggs. because they need to for the tail. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> that's a good point. <laughs> I don't know if that's why, but that's certainly the way the position of this dinosaur in the egg. 
<laughs> and the tail is yeah. in the pointy end too, which makes sense because you know it doesn't need as much width there. It just needs a little bit of length Yo. to squeeze the tail into. But its back is curled up. Yes. Okay. Got yeah, it. at the back. So the it's like it's it does a full hundred and eighty degree turn, sort of like. It almost looks like its neck is broken based on this picture. And maybe it was kind of awkwardly because during fossilization, things can shift and be weird. But it's sort of in a line almost from the tail all the way up through the back, like basically around the shoulders. And then it does like a big kink over for the neck vertebrae and then another big kink over right at the base of the head. Okay. So I think that's part of this tucking posture, which helps them hatch. Okay. So it's maybe it's not just a... A weird fossilization thing. It might have actually been in this really I mean, there, uncomfortable. There were pose. some weird fossilization things that went on with this, but for the tucking, yeah, that's what makes it so unique. Makes me think that humans have it pretty good in our nice, big, relatively large, soft wombs, not in these like really cramped eggs trying to like bursting out of the edges of it, basically. I think humans get cramped towards the end right before birth. Oh, that's probably true. Yeah. Yeah. It's just a sign. Need to get out. Yeah, he's got to get cramped sooner or later. You're not going to make it so that there's a bunch of extra space at the end. Yeah. (laughs) So going back to tucking and how we used to think this was something only birds did, crocodilians in the egg, they're in a sitting posture with their head bending up the chest. So it's a little bit different. We've seen tucking behavior in in enantiornithine birds in the Cretaceous as well. Now, as you can imagine, it's really hard to study the postures of embryonic dinosaurs. There are not that many articulated specimens, and then the egg shape and egg type can vary a lot among dinosaurs. But some specimens where we have seen embryonic dinosaurs, that includes Bebe Long. Uh, It's a perinate skeleton. It was semi-articulated and associated with similar elongate eggs. Yeah, that's definitely the first dinosaur embryo I ever heard of. That was really big news. Yeah. But no embryo was found inside the egg. Oh, really? Yeah. It was just the perinate skeleton that was associated with eggs. Oh, for some reason, I always think of it as like a baby in an egg, but it's not really. It was just, but I guess perinate, that means that we're not sure if it was right before or right after it hatched. Mm -hmm. There's also Troodon formosus, which had a similar posture where the skull is near the flexed hind limbs. And Massospondylus, uh, there's the late-stage embryo that's in this subspherical egg, but that's in a different posture where the skull is near the pole, the not blunt part, the more pointy part, hmm. and the neck curves backwards rather than forward, also known as dorsally rather than ventrally. Oh, and like the death pose. That's weird. Well, it could be because that one was in a soft-shelled egg, and they said, quote, it lacked the rigidity to maintain the original posture after death. Or it could be due to, quote, movements associated with the hatching process. It's just oh, okay. unclear. So in that one, it could have been that it moved after it fossilized or started fossilizing. Yeah. So we definitely need more embryo fossils of all kinds of dinosaurs to better compare and learn more about whether non-avian dinosaurs did this tucking behavior or if it was something more specialized. As I mentioned, the embryo for this particular Overraptorid, Overraptorosaur. Hmm. <laughs> it was probably late stage. That's based on its size and the skeleton being pretty bony. It's well ossified. Not all just cartilage. Mm-hmm. The fact that we actually found a skeleton is a good sign for that too, because a lot of times those really early ones wouldn't get preserved. Yes. 
So it's estimated to be 9.2 inches or 23 and a half centimeters long inside of a 6.6 inch or 16.7 centimeter long by three inch or 7.6 centimeter wide egg. Well, that's actually not that big. I guess it's not mega longa two lithid. It's just regular longa two lithid. <laughs> long, not extra long. Yeah, that's about <laughs> half a foot long. And yeah, that's like a little bigger than a can of soda, I guess. Sort of. <laughs> Funny to compare speaking. eggs to cans of soda. Yeah, it's way bigger than a chicken egg or anything. But, right, you know, smaller than a lot of probably and smaller than an ostrich egg or something. Longer than those eggs too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The skeleton takes up most of the width of the egg, except for there's a three quarter inch or one point nine centimeter space between the blunt pole of the egg and its dorsal vertebrae, and that space could be an air cell which is usually found in bird eggs, but we'd need more evidence to know for sure if it is an air cell. Hmm. This embryo had a deep, toothless skull, and it's estimated to have 22 pre-sacral vertebrae. They CT scan the fossil, but there's a lot of high-density materials, um, iron-rich sediments, and Hmm. so there's a lack of contrast between the bone and the matrix, and that quote did not provide useful anatomical data for bones still within the matrix, Yeah, which makes sense. You gotta throw that in a synchrotron or some really high-powerful thing if you're trying to see through rock and metal. Yes. Now, it looks like the pubis of this embryo points post-ventrally or backward, and that's similar to modern birds, but it's not similar to other oviraptorosaurs. Those point downward or forward. Hmm. So it could be that oh, as oviraptorosaurs grew and matured, the pubis orientation changed, and then the orientation in birds is this patamorphic dinosaurian feature, which is a juvenile feature that birds keep as adults. Yeah, that's interesting. They didn't even suggest that maybe it was just screwed up during fossilization. They think it looks pretty reliably in that position? Well, actually, no, I take that back. It could also be the way the embryo fossilized. They did mention some sort of disruption since it's not articulated to the ilium. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah, since it's still so young, this stuff can shift around usually a little bit easier. Mm Mm-hmm. This embryo was acquired sometime around 2000, the year 2000, (laughs) and specimens were found during construction of the Ingliang Stone Nature History Museum in the 2010s, and this egg is now at the Ingliang Stone Nature History Museum. Cool. Yeah. Yeah, no one of our listeners told us about that museum and how it's like sort of a passion project of a guy who likes dinosaurs. Yeah. <laughs> which is really cool. And now they have this amazing specimen. Yeah, that's great. Well, here's hoping they find some more. Just more fossils, more embryos, please. <laughs> yeah. Of any kind. Any kind of dinosaur, I should say. That one's a little cutie, though. Yeah. Its head is so big. (laughs) Its tail is all short and cute. (laughs) Just like you'd want for a baby dinosaur. That's a tough act to follow, but I'm going to try with my new ankylosaur. (laughs) So this is a follow-up from the new Mongolian ankylosaur we talked about at SVP. And it was written by Jin Young Park, who's the guy that presented at SVP, and published in Scientific Reports which is open access, which means you can see all of the lovely pictures for this one as well. If you're following along, this is specimen MPC-D100-1353. It was found in 2008 and returned to Mongolia in 2016 after it got prepared. I think it was a joint expedition kind of situation, and it was just published. So 
not that long of a turnaround, about 13, 14 years. So most of the authors are from South Korea, where it was prepared, but there are also researchers from Mongolia and the U.S. It looks like pretty good international collaboration. Nice. The new species is Tarkia tumanovae, and Tarkia is an existing genus from 1977. comes up from time to time. It's a really cool ankylosaur. It means brainy one. And of course, whenever I mention Tarkia and that it means brainy one, I have to mention Cycania, which is (laughs) the beautiful one because they were found together and Cycania was better preserved. So it was the beautiful one. But Tarkia was presumed to have a larger brain because it has a deeper brain case. So it was the brainy one. And I just love that story that they found the brainy one and the beautiful one together. Yeah. And if you want to hear more about Tarkia in general, it was our dinosaur in the day of episode 215. Oh, good. Yeah, I was going to go into all the different species and stuff, but you already did that. So I don't have to. (laughs) (laughs) The new species, Tumanove, is in honor of quote, Tatiana Tumanova for her contributions toward the understanding of Mongolian ankylosaurs, end quote. Nice. Yeah, definitely that name comes up from time to time. Mm -hmm. And the other main Tarkia species that comes is is the most well-known, actually, is Tarkia Terisei, which is named after another woman who worked in Mongolia studying ankylosaurs and also was the one who named the genus Tarkia and Cycania. That's Teresa, not Tumanove. Tarkia Tumanove was found in the Nemect Formation, but it's really important compared to some of the other Nemect ankylosaur finds because a lot of them are missing skulls, but this one is not. In fact, it includes a really beautiful, nearly complete skull with lots of teeth. It is missing the jaw, but the jaw isn't that important in ankylosaurs for identifying them. It's almost exactly what you want or need for an ankylosaur. Yeah. It's a, and it's kind of funny because it makes me wonder if they had found this one originally, would it have been the brainy one and the beautiful one? Because mm. this one, I think, might even look nicer than Cycania or Cycania. In addition to that really nice skull, they found vertebrae from all over the body. So you've got your neck, your back, your sacrum, your tail, as well as the club tail. Oh, everybody's favorite. Yeah. And by everybody, I mean... At least one person in this who makes this podcast favorite. <laughs> well, I mean, I think if you asked a typical dinosaur enthusiast what their favorite part of an ankylosaur is, it would probably be the club. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Well, maybe the osteoderms in general. The osteoderms are cool, but the biggest, baddest osteoderms are on the club. Mm. They also found 16 ribs, which is really great for an ankylosaur. I feel like they always just get eaten or something after they die because... Usually we're not finding a lot of ribs, as well as the hips and a lot of the sacrum and some osteoderms. It has several unique features. We talked about these a little bit back when we covered the Society of Vertebrate Paleontology presentation, including the quote-unquote bulbous scute on its snout. And it also has a horn near the jaw, which is in a different position from Tarkia teresae. This is one of those ankylosaurs that has damaged ribs as well as a damaged tail club, which is probably from ankylosaurs sort of backing up into each other oh, and no. bashing each other in the ribs. Ouch. Yeah. <laughs> it's just, I guess it's a thing because it's come up in multiple specimens at this point. Why did they do that? I don't know. It seems like it's probably like rams butting heads. Like we don't know if 
pachycephalosaurs ran into each other with their heads, but now we're pretty sure that ankylosaurs did bash <laughs> each other with their tails in the ribs, which is way worse, it seems yes, like. Yes, all the osteoderms. Yeah. Fortunately, a lot of the ankylosaurs do have some pretty good osteoderms on their sides, too, to protect them from the osteoderms that are bashing them. But yeah, we didn't find those for this one. So we know that one of the ribs might have been a little bit damaged and the tail club is a little bit damaged, but we don't know if that caused it a lot of trouble or not. There are lots of great pictures that go with this because it is a really great find. And since the paper is open access, you can get the link from our show notes, as we mentioned earlier. So go to what'll it's going to be inodino.com slash babypiosaurus episode 373. That's always the format I do it in. And then people can't guess what it's going to be in advance because <laughs> they don't know what the dinosaur of the day is going to be. <laughs> What's your patron? Sometimes we let you in. Oh, yeah, I suppose so. But you can also just click the link in the description, too. So my favorite picture might actually be of the ribs, which is weird. Yeah. But they have a picture that just really clearly shows how the ribs and the vertebrae integrate together. And the rib fits between that butterfly-like process at the top of the vertebra and the centrum down below. So it's mm. just like really, it's like Lego pieces. It looks like it just really snugly fits in there. You've also just been into ankylosaur ribs lately. I guess, yeah. <laughs> it looks like it would have been a really sturdy back like that. Almost mm -hmm. like a carapace of a turtle, the way it's all interconnected and just like really rigid, especially with that outer shield of osteoderms. It's nice to see. But they also have a lot of other amazing details. So there's a fantastic set of hips with a huge sinsacrum. Sinsacrum is basically an extra long set of fused vertebrae that go between the hips. So normally it's just a sacrum and it's got like about three or four vertebrae. So this one has those usual three quote-unquote sacral vertebrae, but then the other ones are technically four that are in front of the sacrum and two that are behind the sacrum, and then they all combine into a nine-fused vertebrae syn-sacrum, and they're fused at both the centra and neural spines, which makes just a really good base for swinging a tail club because it's... <laughs> It's just a big mass, you know, a big solid base that you could attach those muscles to and all that good stuff. It looks like it'd be excellent. And speaking of the tail, it has a gorgeous club. It's preserved really, really well. It includes 14 fused vertebrae for the handle. Just the amount of fused stuff and how rigid this dinosaur is all over the body is really cool. The 14 fused vertebrae in the handle, it's called, that lead up to the club, slightly curve up before they get to the osteoderms that make up the club itself which is kind of cool it shows you that it may not have been dragging the tail you know sort of aiming up a little bit mm -hmm. although i guess if it was dragging that might also happen it's reinforced with a ton of ossified tendons they actually have a picture of just like a stack of ossified tendons and it looks like just a bunch of skinny bamboo poles or something piled together it's they've just got so many of these ossified tendons one of those is actually fractured and later healed, mm. which shows it was swinging that tail with some serious force that it broke. It's not an insignificant tendon. This thing is like a centimeter, you know, maybe a, a third of an inch thick. Mm -hmm. And it's ossified, which means it's like a bone. Right. And there's a whole bunch of them. And one of them snapped oh under the gosh. force and then healed. That must have hurt. <laughs> Animals are amazing. 
The club itself is 1.7 meters or about 5.5 feet long. It's a long club. It may have been even longer in life with the keratin covering over those osteoderms oh, on the yeah. club. Just like we talk about with the claws. Yeah, yeah. The keratin can be all over the place, especially on, on bony things. Mm-hmm. And it also could have been longer on the front end with more vertebrae, possibly. So most of that 1.7 meters or five and a half feet is the handle. The big blunt bashing end is about 56 centimeters long by 48 centimeters wide or about 22 by 19 inches, which is big. I mean, that's quite a bit bigger than that's like a a big serving platter, I guess, (laughs) sort of size. (laughs) We're comparing uh, eggs to cans of soda and ankylosaur clubs to serving platters. I might be getting hungry. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) It's also because this one is nearly a circle. It's almost completely round. Although one side is a little bit smaller. We mentioned before it might have gotten injured from bashing it against other ankylosaurs or something else. Mm -hmm. So maybe it would have been a perfect circle if it didn't get injured on the one side. Stunted growth a little bit. Tarchia tuminovae is from the middle Campanian to lower Maastrichtian just like Tarkia Teresae, which puts it at about 71 million years ago, plus or minus a couple million years as usual. It is also a few million years before Ankylosaurus. It's also on the opposite side of the world, but I think it's always good to mention. It's always good to give Ankylosaurus its due. (laughs) (laughs) The paper includes the idea that Tarkia tuminove was likely a browser that was mentioned at SVP2, which would be eating plants up off the ground. That's what browsing is. Whereas grazing is like a cow with the mm-hmm. mouth down on the ground, eating the grass or whatever is really, really low. There were a lot of ornithopods in the fossil record from around that time. And they might have been grazers eating down like a cow, which might be why ankylosaurs like Tarkia tuminovae ended up being browsers because they could get that niche partitioning. But another option is a change in diet could have been caused by a change in the plants that were growing in the area. So whether there was some sort of climate change or if it was just plants changing, you know, competing with each other Mm -hmm. and there was just more browsing available to do, could be why it was browsing. But either way, Tarkia got the food that was available. (laughs) They made it work. Grew to a big, strong boy or girl (laughs) before fossilizing. (laughs) Uh, That fossil is permanently housed at the Institute of Paleontology in Ulaanbaatar, Mongolia. I don't think it's on display, but they have a lot of ankylosaurs in that museum. So Mm -hmm. I'm sure there's some cool stuff to see if you can go there. Someday, maybe we can get there. Yeah, that would be amazing. In other parts of the world, I've got a quick update on the Marianning statue. It has been approved. So the plan is to unveil it on May 21st of this year. Mary Anning's 223rd birthday. Of course, yes. <laughs> Pivotal 223rd. You know, they call that the statue birthday. <laughs> <laughs> well, they might now. <laughs> and again, it's going to be this life-size bronze statue. It's going to overlook Black Ven, and that's where she found a lot of fossils. So very fitting. And since it's approved, it seems like it's likely to happen in time for her birthday. I mean. Nice. And our last news item for this episode is for the coin collectors out there, you can buy an Australovenador coin from the Royal Australian Mint. We already got ours. <laughs> yeah, get your dinosaur numismatics on. Mm-hmm. 
They also, the Royal Australian Mint, invited the character Dorothy the Dinosaur, who is, I guess, a friend of the Wiggles, to mint the first coin in the world for this year, 2022. That happened on January 1st. Oh, what? I didn't realize that was a thing, but that makes sense. And the theme of the first coin was dinosaurs down under, so that's why they had Dorothy. It's like throwing out a pitch at a baseball game. I guess, making yeah. Making the first coin at a mint. That's weird. It's the year of the dinosaur. Cool. <laughs> I like that, but it's very weird. Everything about that is weird, that it's Dorothy the dinosaur, that it's a friend of the Wiggles. I, I, I don't know what to think. Just embrace the dinosaurs. Okay. Yeah. And the coins, they come in silver, gold, as a set of four coins that has marks for four cities in Australia. What's it? Sydney, Melbourne, Brisbane, and Canberra. Is that the one we got? The four coin set? Mm-hmm. I think that was actually, was that the cheapest one? Yes. Because that's a, just regular coin. It's not made out of silver or gold, I think. I think so, yeah. But yeah, I'm excited to see what it looks like in person. I think for us Americans, the shipping cost more than the coins themselves. <laughs> But it's still cool. Mm -hmm. This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College, where you can become a part of the scientific process. As a participant, you can go on a real-life dinosaur dig, and you'll be helping to advance science and our understanding of the ancient world. What's really cool is that the fossilized bones that are being excavated, they're public, and they're going to be displayed and preserved for future generations to study and admire. Yeah, we've mentioned how that's a really important part of the scientific process, not just getting them out and describing them once, but keeping them and preserving them so that future questions and future scientists can take a look at those bones to answer new questions and validate results. And the site is special and also near and dear to me because it's in the Morrison Formation, known for the sauropods, mm -hmm. of course, of the Jurassic time. And it represents one of the best bone beds ever found in the saltwash member. Yeah, the current interpretation is that the site was the result of a Brachiosaurus sort of jamming up a river and then other carcasses piling up behind it. Oh, no. And that's how we got a bunch of different types of dinosaurs all fossilizing together. So, oh, no, but also, yay. <laughs> Good for us as scientists. <laughs> mm -hmm. And dinosaur enthusiasts. Yes. So there are two scheduled digs if you want to get involved with getting these bones out of the ground. You can go from July 6th to July 20th or from July 22nd to August 5th. Head over to cncc.edu slash dinodig. You'll get all of the details. Just make sure that you register online by May 31st. And again, that is cncc.edu slash dinodig, D-I-N-O-D-I-G. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. And now we're going to go on to our interview with Cebu Ciso, but again, as always, if you're a patron and you want to hear a longer version of this interview, definitely head over to your premium content feed and grab the extended cut from there. We're joined this week by Sibu Ciso Biela, who is a science writer and communicator and an advocate for the decolonization of science. And we're talking to him today because 
He had a great article about the discovery of Laduma Hadi and translating it into Zulu. Thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, thanks for having me. So this is a, maybe a tricky question to start off with, but what does it mean to decolonize science? Hmm. Yeah, that is a tricky question. <laughs> I always expect it, but every time my brain goes blank again, like, <laughs> where do I start? What do that's, I, that's who fair. am I talking to? Uh, so um, I, I think for me, I mean, decolonization means so many things for a lot of people and to some degree it can be a buzzword. But uh, when it comes to my own work as a science communicator, the decolonization of science basically means we should be able as non-white people in Africa to talk about and understand science with each other without having to talk about it in English and without having this idea that it's it's not for us, that it's something that's separate from our own cultures, that it's a very Western thing. I mean, a lot of us in South Africa particularly have grown up with that idea that science isn't for uh, for Black people. Mm. It's only mm. for people from the West. And it's been drilled into us, um, especially during apartheid in South Africa. And a lot of people have grown up having that notion and being one of those people who've grown up having that notion and finding out more about how science works and the history of science, I've been trying my hardest to remove that notion from people's minds. Yeah, that's 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 basically, in my own work, what decolonization of science means. Mm -hmm. That sounds super important. Well, <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, I've heard the notion before that science doesn't feel like it's a part of a lot of cultures, which is really terrible because science is so wonderful and so helpful. And the more people that get involved in science, the more better it gets. Yeah, the better it gets for everybody. So I, yeah, mm. I certainly appreciate that you're trying to, you know, get it more into the culture. That's awesome. Yeah, that you don't have to be a nerd to to like science. <laughs> That's for sure. You can just like it. Yeah, yeah. Like it, it's the craziest thing because growing up reading a lot of science fiction um, and liking a lot of science programs um, and having icons like uh, Carl Sagan, a lot of people would uh, sort of tease me by saying, oh, you like that white people stuff. Mm. And I was always so fascinated as to why they would think that. But over time, it started to make sense. And I understood the history behind what made people get that idea. So uh, I've been trying to work very hard to, to, to undo that. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I guess the if you look at science from a anthropological standpoint, which is, you know, because it's humans that do science, Basically, it was just white people for a super long time. So I guess if you're talking about scientists or you're referring to specific scientists, they probably were white people for a long time. Have you, mm. is that getting any better, you think, in South Africa or is it still a, a really big problem? It It is getting better in some way. There's a lot of efforts to to undo that history, uh, because if you look back 20, 30 years ago, the heads of department of every university or every publicly known scientist in South Africa was 
basically an old white man mm-hmm. um or if they're progressive um it's an old white woman uh <laughs> so <laughs> the and 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 especially uh when I grew up reading about dinosaurs and uh, i mean basically paleontology and pa- paleoanthropology the people that you'd see on the cover of books the people whose names would be associated with uh, certain fossils and things like that used to be like an old white man um mm-hmm. someone especially from uh the uk i mean that's still the case today but then uh the more you dig into it the more you find that there were a lot of other people involved a lot of south africans involved in that work as well from people who were helping out in the background people who were doing the digs themselves all that all sorts of stuff um, in that regard but it has it has changed um in the last uh 20 to 30 years in South Africa and there's a lot more diversity and visibility of uh, a diverse group of people doing science in South Africa and it's inspiring a lot of young people as well nice that's yeah. really hopeful yeah that's really great Garrett mentioned this, but one of your assignments as a, a writer was to write about the discovery of Ladumahadi, but in Zulu. We read your article, which was fantastic, about how did this work, and I know it was difficult because you didn't want to write from English and translate. You wanted to write directly in, in hmm. Zulu. Can you tell us a little bit about that process? Okay, so it's it started when I heard the news um, about the uh, the discovery or the description of Little Mahadi Mafube. Not that I didn't know about uh, South African dinosaurs. I knew there were some South African dinosaurs, but I didn't know too many of them or that South Africa is one of the most important sites for for such discoveries it's something that Mm -hmm. i didn't know much about and then to find that they had discovered what was then the largest dinosaur on the planet in south africa as as a writer i was appointed uh, by my editor to write about the the discovery and we had the idea that let's try to write about it in in zulu and i didn't want to write about it from English and then translated into into Zulu because as a Zulu speaker you can tell something something has been translated and hasn't been written directly from Zulu it hasn't been written for you mm. um what fascinated what what drew me to the story is not just the discovery itself uh, when i was reading the paper it also talks about the fact that Leto Mahadi is a sauropodomorph which was news to me <laughs> i didn't know about sauropodomorphs I didn't know that uh, the ancestors of sauropods used to be bipedal, mm-hmm. right? I didn't even know that they used to be carnivores. There's so much that I didn't know. And looking at the illustrations that they'd made, it was so fascinating to me. And that in the paper, they were talking about the important evolution of sauropods and how important it is in the evolution of dinosaurs in that way. And I wanted to write about that. But then I got derailed because... The first problem is there is no word for dinosaur in Zulu, mm-hmm. right? Which is, I think, quite important. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it is, it is, right? And I thought, okay, maybe I can work around that. I'm sure there's, uh, I, I can work around that, but there's no words for fossil, no words for um, other things that are related to just talking about dinosaurs and paleontology and things like that. So I ended up having to explain a lot of things before I can get into the actual story of the discovery. And 
it was quite a disappointment for me because I then realized how poor my home language was, my mother tongue, at being able to talk about science. And it sort of was a wake-up call uh, for me as to why it's so difficult to talk about science in general or even just dinosaurs in general in my own language and that's why it's so difficult for people to connect with it mm -hmm. i mean in south africa you can talk about sports politics a bunch of other things around the braai which is what you guys call a barbecue <laughs> um so you can talk uh, about those things around uh, a braai in your home language but as soon as you get into anything scientific or technological you have to switch to english and that that really sours the conversation somewhat mm -hmm. I, I mean a person can still keep along the conversation but they can't it's it, it just changes the mood in mm -hmm. some way and and i love talking about dinosaurs i love reading about dinosaurs but i can't really share that love and passion with other people in my own language and yeah that that's that's that that was the journey and that's part of how my journey into decolonization of science uh, basically started mm -hmm. wow that's a that's a really compelling point I, I didn't think about that specific situation because it's like i think a lot of people would say you know in south africa most people speak english even if zulu is their first language mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. what does it even matter but if you're talking about, mm. well, we want it to be a part of the culture, we want people to be excited about mm. it. And when you're speaking, mm. you know, your a second or third language that you learned, it's it doesn't have the same impact. Mm. That's really interesting. Yeah, it's like uh, having a lot of a lot of uh, Zulu speaking South Africans or even second language uh, speakers of English in South Africa have a traditional name and then you have an English middle name and sometimes an English first name and everyone knows that it's just a name that you use at school mm. or it's a name that you use maybe to put in your job applications and stuff like that uh, because it's easier pr to pronounce. Mm. So there's that associating English as something that you need for work and school and science being something that can only be done in English, it makes science only something that you'd want to do as a job yeah. or at school or and only because you're forced to. So it's it doesn't permeate the culture for that reason. Gotcha. It makes it a big bummer. <laughs> it sounds like it does. It does. It does. <laughs> so then for your article, how did you kind of get around you said you you ended up describing some of the words first before delving into it. What did that look like? Okay, so I, t I took a few approaches. Since I couldn't just use the word dinosaur or try to what's sometimes called Africanize it mm -hmm. uh, or Bantusize it, in my Zulu language, it's part of a language, uh, a group of languages in South Africa called Bantu languages. So for most of those languages, if you have an English term that you want to translate into your language, you, you can just easily put an E sound at the beginning, uh, which is spelled I, basically, but it's E sound. Mm. Um, so for dinosaur, it would be E dinosaur, right? Um, it's pretty simple. Which sounds kind of cool. Yeah, it's pretty <laughs> simple. Uh, it makes sense, but it doesn't tell a reader what a dinosaur is or what what you're talking about in the article sure it's a dinosaur some people have an idea of what a dinosaur is um they've seen it in movies but then i realized 
while talking to a lot of people and just knowing how a lot of people think as well as a science as a science communicator is that a lot of people have the wrong idea of what a dinosaur is mm-hmm. right so if it's if it's a lizard and and it lived in the past ah it is a dinosaur <laughs> right that's that's just uh, or it, if it looks like a lizard so even if, if, even for myself it took me it took me a long time to come to terms with the fact that uh, Dimetrodon isn't a dinosaur. Oh, yeah. I went right? through that, so, too. Um, and we, yeah, right? <laughs> we have a lot of, and we have a lot of those, uh, a, a lot of important uh, Dimetrodon fossils in South Africa. And when you look at it, it's got the sail, it's got dinosaur-y things um, mm-hmm. about it. I mean, you say, no, that is a dinosaur. What do you mean it's not a dinosaur? Right? <laughs> and some, sometimes you get these packs of toys where you get a dimetrodon mm-hmm. in oh, yeah. it um, and they say it's a dinosaur so it's difficult to remove people's notion uh, or to remove this notion in people's heads uh, about what a dinosaur is so what i decided to do is to use the article to describe a dinosaur as much as possible without using the word dinosaur because at first I thought, okay, I'll use the etymology of the word. I think it's Greek or Latin mm-hmm. for uh, the word dinosaur is um, terrible lizard, mm-hmm. which was an awesome term when they uh, uh, when it when it was uh, it was named. I thought, okay, well, a dinosaur isn't really a um, a terrible lizard, and it's a really bad way of describing it. I thought, okay, the best thing I can do in the short amount of time that I had was to. Describe what a dinosaur is. So a short phrase or term that I used is Isiloane Sasemandulo, which in Zulu means ancient animal. So in using that term, it, while it might not be precise, I like it because it's accurate. Mm-hmm. Right. So I had to weigh the two precision and accuracy. I then proceeded to explain uh, the story behind the discovery and describing uh, the new dinosaur discovery and why it's important for the evolution of dinosaurs. I talked about its stance, uh, the fact that its hind legs were parasagittal, right underneath it and sort of uh, straight in a way, mm-hmm. and that its front its front limbs were sort of sprawled in a way. Like I was using that to describe what separates a dinosaur from a lizard, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So uh, that's, what, that's what ended up happening. So someone who might have taken it for granted that they know what a dinosaur is, while reading that in Isuzulu, they were able to get a good idea of what exactly a dinosaur is based on me taking the time describing the dinosaur discovery and why it's important in in the evolution of dinosaurs. So that was the opportunity that I discovered there, that sometimes when you try to translate scientific concepts into an African language, you end up doing a lot of science communication that you wouldn't think of doing um, if you're writing in English. Mm. Mm. Yeah, that makes sense. I like that's a really clever translation, and it actually gets you around the issue of, you know, Dimetrodon not being a dinosaur. Because if you're just classifying it mm. as ancient animals, then it's like, hey, yeah, sure, Dimetrodon's an ancient animal, and <laughs> you could include mm. the other ones mm. and not get mm. all pedantic about it not being a dinosaur, yeah, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah, I was just looking at some of your translations too in the article where you talked about writing the story. And you look, yeah, you've got fossil, which is, I, I will not be able to pronounce that correctly, but Zulu for old bones found in the ground. Amatambo, amatala, atolagala, emshabatini, yes. Ah, thank you. 
Yeah, and that's another problem that I had with that, uh, the fact that I can only talk about fossils here as bones um, and not talk mm. about other materials like shells and leaves, even imprints, uh, footprints and things like that. So yeah, that was, that was some of the limitations of the article, which, which is why I'm working on, an, on a project at the moment that's trying to create a glossary of terms mm-hmm. um, for scientific, scientific discourse in six African languages, and we're trying to create sort of universal definitions and terms and strategies of how to translate certain terms um, in these six African languages. So it's something that would solve that problem, uh, like would have fossil and describe what a fossil is from English and then try to translate that for Isizulu and five other languages. Oh, wow. Cool. I think I, I read that in one of your... In one of your pieces, like it, it's training a natural language processing algorithm to do this. That's how it works. Yes, yes. Um, in short, it's sort of like we're trying to create a, a Google Translate for science for African languages. Basically, is the idea more or less that you take the word that comes usually from Latin or Greek and then go to the root words and then take those root words and turn them in? That hopefully those translate easier. That's part of the strategy. Uh, for a lot of the words, uh, we can do a lot of borrowing, mm. unless borrowing is not uh, necessary. Like uh, what we've been sort of discovering and talking about is the fact that a lot of a lot of science itself is talked about in English, yes, but the language of science isn't itself English, mm-hmm. right? So uh, you're not really translating English; you're translating the science. And we're using as 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 data to train the machine. We're using jargon-heavy um, complex science articles to do that. And a lot of the phrases in you find in those articles sound like English, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, but the. But they're really not. I mean, this, today I was just uh, writing some articles uh, based on uh, a, a few science articles I was reading. And some of those phrases, it doesn't seem like those scientists are trying to communicate with other human beings. So yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's just part of the part of the work. It's, it's science communication from the science English and then translating that. But we're still working on a lot of the strategies with um, linguists from all over the continent as, for, as to the best strategies for particular terms uh, and words. Nice. That's exciting. What are the other languages? Uh, So the other languages are Yoruba, Amharic, Sepedi, which is another South African languages. Mm. There's Hausa, and then there's Luganda. Uh, So those languages basically cover the whole, or most of the continent uh, with millions of, of speakers there's this idea that there's over 2,000 languages in Africa, yeah. mm-hmm. uh, but there's probably much, 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 much fewer than that. Um, maybe a, a, a couple of hundred at most. The thing that happened is that uh, during uh, colonial times uh, or the past colonial times in Africa, a lot of missionaries went to different places. So if a, a different missionary group comes to one part of South Africa um, and another missionary group goes to another part of South Africa, where 
the same languages spoken, they would call those languages different names and call them different dialects of uh, uh, different languages when in fact they're just slightly different dialects. So uh-huh. it's just an overestimation because of that, because there wasn't, like they, instead of communicating with each other, they would go back uh, to their homeland with whatever information that they have. So it's not over 2,000 languages. It's much fewer than that. They are these six languages are quite different, but they cover a lot of language groups in mm. in, in in Africa. So it would be it's 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 a great start to 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 start with them. Wow! So the the challenge is way less insurmountable than I had previously. I would have thought that you can you can translate to six languages and cover a good portion of the whole continent. That's really awesome. Yeah, it's it's a great start, and then uh, perhaps we can start talking about dinosaurs in those languages um, hopefully soon so this sounds like a huge pro- i'm assuming you don't speak all of these languages or do you no okay. i do not <laughs> um and and since no one uh, speaks all of them what we're trying to do is we're trying to come up with all these rules at the fundamental level as much as possible because no one can check all six languages and how something was translated, mm-hmm. but we can talk about the rules for each uh, sort of kind of term or subject from the beginning. So if we can agree on that, then we can let the other languages uh, sort of make their own decisions as to how to translate uh, that strategy mm. um, in their own languages. Yeah. Uh, how many people do you have working on this with you now? So we have a few project partners, myself, so there's a science communication team. There's uh, a machine translation team. They they do all the fancy computer stuff, <laughs> <laughs> and then we have the translators. Um, so sort of the, the the translators they are being run by a, a, a translation group called STST Communications. And then there's myself uh, from Science Link, science communication company, and then there's the uh, Masakane group uh which are the guys who are dealing with the computer stuff and then there's the people who are giving us the actual scientific articles the scientific data that we'll be translating that's the africa archive um it's basically a preprint server of uh african research from all over the continent so it's those it's those groups of people who are working together on on this project so i'd say the core group is made of maybe around five to 10 people. Mm. And then you've got just teams of other people from each of the companies uh, coming together to do this work. Um, so it's, it's, it's quite the undertaking. And we do realize that we sort of a uh, bit of more than we can do mm-hmm. um, at the, uh, because it's such an insurmountable thing. Yeah. It's basically a, 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 a sorrow part of a problem, right? <laughs> it's it's uh, <laughs> we're doing so much work. Um, the project is going to be probably much longer, and there's going to be many stages of funding and things like that because we want to get it right from the beginning. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's probably going to be dozens of people um, involved um, going forward. The words that you used for like dinosaur and fossil and, and all the words in your article are those sticking around or have they been updated so that's the thing about language uh the words that i used were very generic mm. some people do use them when they talk about those things so they're they're much less 
nouns in a way and more phrases mm-hmm. um, such as dinosaur, ancient animal, uh, fossil, ancient bones found in the ground and stuff like that. So what you're trying to do is with this project, the words that will come uh, out of it, including dinosaur and fossil and other things, we are in communication with a language boards for each of the languages um, that we're working on and we'll be providing them with the words that we've come up with and sort of the process that we've used um, and they can be the people to distribute those words for people like book writers and scientists and other people who want to use those words because if it's standardized you can know that if as a, as a science writer you're using a certain word that's been translated a scientist will be using the same word if they're talking about it in that language. A science communicator will be using that word and it will be put in a book as well. So we're trying uh, our best to have them standardized in that way so that they do stick around. Cool. So then, yeah, that is that is the ultimate way to translate it, right? You're coming up with a new word, not just a transliteration or a translation or sticking a I in front of it. It's going to be a native mm, thing mm, that, mm. that sounds good and matches with the whole vocabulary. I didn't really, so each of these languages does have, I always think of French as like the weird one because I don't think English has a like board or any governing uh, the words i don't know where english words come from but they're <laughs> they come from a lot of other languages they come yeah. from twitter <laughs> Twitter, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's just like totally made up maybe tiktok now <laughs> yeah 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 <laughs> i i know you're you're very busy you've got a lot of stuff going on are there any other projects you're working on that you can share or yes um at the very early stages of a new podcast um, that we're producing. As soon as we have enough episodes, then we'll publish it as a as a season. But my friend and I uh, just talk about any scientific topic, uh, something in the news or something basic uh, like the Big Bang or the elements or dinosaurs, and just try and talk about it exclusively in Zulu. And just something that we're trying to do that at the end we can try to come up with a Zulu word for a certain scientific thing. So. That's that's a project that's that's coming up. Hopefully, it'll be wrapped up in a couple of months or so. Oh, that's amazing! I had a feeling when you asked us about the room tone. Like, oh, <laughs> you know about podcasting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> hey, everybody has a podcast, so I'm gonna get one too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, that's why I'm able to uh, uh, sort so much of the sound stuff. Yeah. Are there many? Will you be like the first Zulu science science podcast? podcast? I guess. Um, <laughs> actually, yeah. yeah, it's gonna be like it's 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 crazy because for a long time we didn't start with the production of the podcast, thinking, yeah, there's probably people who are doing it, and then you find out, wow, <laughs> no. <laughs> so yeah, it's 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 a great opportunity to be a pioneer. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's great. And use those mm. new words. Exactly. Yeah. Workshop exactly. them. That's the fu- that's the fun. <laughs> Yeah, that's the fun thing. I'm the science guy and she's the uh, sort of the linguist. So when I talk to her about these things, um, it's always interesting, this back and forth. Uh, because if it was two science people talking uh, uh, across each other, it wouldn't work uh, as well if we're trying to reach uh, an audience that has no idea or that doesn't exactly know exactly what we're talking about. So that's that's the, that's the, that's the fun part. Mm-hmm. Oh, that sounds great. Well, let us know when that launches. Yeah, yeah, definitely tell us. Okay. 
I will. <laughs> For our listeners, then where did, where's the best place if they wanted to find out more about you and your work online? You can follow me on Twitter. I make a lot of cheesy, cringy uh, science jokes there. <laughs> um, so <laughs> on Twitter, I'm AstroSibs. That's my Twitter handle. And if you find me there, uh, all my other contacts are on my on my bio there. But yeah, all every new article that's published about me or one that I've written will be will be there, and everything that I'm doing will be uh, updated there. Awesome. Great. Yeah, we'll we'll put a link to your Twitter handle and bio in our show notes for anybody. Thank you. Thank you very much. Cool. Well, thank you so much for joining us. That was a very interesting conversation. A lot of topics I hadn't, I wouldn't even know where to begin. And it's really great that you're tackling these really difficult issues. Yes. And making a lot of progress. Oh, thank you. Thank you very much. When I started a lot of them, I was thinking, oh, probably someone else is doing it. And then by the time I realized that not really, it's too late. (laughs) It's my problem now. (laughs) Awesome. And thank you so much for for, for having me. It's such an honor. Oh, yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much again for chatting with us. Definitely learned a lot. And my goodness, it's impressive how many projects CBCSO is working on. I'm excited to see how they all turn out. Yeah, yeah. The project of basically creating so many new words in languages is quite a daunting task, but it's, it sounds promising. Yes, and all related to science communication, which it's so cool to see the different ways that you can go with science communication. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. And now on to our dinosaur of the day, Bay Piausaurus, which was a request from Tyrant King via our Patreon and Discord, so thank you. Bay Piausaurus was a therizinosauroid theropod that lived in the early Cretaceous in what is now Liaoning, China. It was found in the Yixian Formation. And it looked pretty stocky. It had these big hands and claws and a long tail, and it walked on two legs. Claw-wise, though, it's not its not like Therizinosaurus. It's... Well, that is hard to beat, yes. <laughs> But since it's a Theracinosauroid, maybe you already know, it was an herbivore. Oh, it did also have a shorter neck than other Therizinosaurs. But they already had a pretty short neck, I feel like. Oh, some of them were some sort of, of up were, there. Yeah. Bapiosaurus, the feet had three toes, which is different from other more advanced Therizinosaurs that had four toes. <laughs> I didn't realize some Therizinosaurs <laughs> had four toes. Just another thing to make them weird. <laughs> yeah, they're weird dinosaurs. Oh, and its inner toes were smaller. 
Babyosaurus was estimated to be about 7.2 feet or 2.2 meters long and weigh 99 to 201 pounds or 45 to 91 kilograms. This is a little guy. Yeah. A little weirdo. (laughs) It had brownish feathers that probably covered its body. And it's one of the largest known dinosaurs with evidence of feathers. It was, I should note, found before Euteranus was found. Gotcha. Oh, that's really cool. I I remember people have asked us if Therizinosaurus had feathers, and I didn't know. But if this ancestor to Therizinosaurus, mm-hmm. or potential ancestor, at least somewhere in that ballpark, has feathers, that's a good sign that maybe some of the bigger later Therizinosaurus did too. True. Although... We already mentioned that this one had some differences, like the toes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so the fossils for Bay Piaosaurus were found in 1996 by Li Yinxiang, a local farmer, who found a partial skeleton in Sehutun, Liaoning. And it would, then it was described in 1999 by Xu Xing and others. The type species is Bay Piaosaurus inexpectus. And the genus name means Bay Piao lizard. That's after the city near where it was found. And the species name means unexpected and refers to its surprising features. (laughs) Now, the holotype includes a partial skeleton of a subadult, parts of the skull with the teeth, also some vertebrae, ribs, pygostyle, chevrons, forelimbs, uh, incomplete pubis, femur, tibia, metatarsals, skin impressions, and more. So it's got a lot of incomplete bones, but so many of them that it sounds like we got a pretty good idea about some of its details. Mm Mm-hmm. It also explains why it's so small, potentially, if it's a subadult. Yes, true. Now, the quarry where the fossils were found, they were re-excavated later, and then even more fossils were found. That includes the pelvic girdle and caudal vertebrae. A second specimen was described by Xuxing and others in 2009, and that one's a partial skeleton. They had preserved feathers and also a complete skull, a sclerotic ring. Oh, wow. Yeah. The, the bones and the eye. Yeah. <laughs> That's impressive. The mandible, vertebrae, humerus, metacarpals, and more, though the back of the skull for that one was badly crushed. And then in 2014, Lee and others mentioned a third specimen. That was a partial skeleton, also with a badly crushed skull, but it had most of the vertebral column, arms, and more, as well as traces of feathers around the neck. Wow. Yeah, lots of evidence of feathers then. Mm-hmm. Bapiosaurus had a relatively large head compared to other therizinosaurs. And its lower jaw was about the same length as its femur. Yeah, yeah, it's got a big weird horse head. Yeah. The pyga style had five fused vertebrae. It's the tail. Yeah, the little tiny miniature tail. Mm-hmm. I didn't realize there was dinosaurs that had pyga styles too. That's Usually you see that on birds, not so much on dinosaurs, non-avian dinosaurs. True, although I can't remember now about Therizinosaurus's tail. It also looks like Bapiosaurus has a normal tail before the pica style. So just like the tip of it is fused to give it. I would assume, I'm surprised the paleo art I'm looking at doesn't show a fan of feathers, but usually that's what they show when there's a pica style because that's what modern birds do at least. Could be because of the feather impressions. We might know a little bit. The tail is still kind of long. It had more than 30 caudal vertebrae. Now, according to Lindsay Zano, Bapiosaurus had unique characteristics, including the last four dorsal vertebrae, the spine, they're fused, and from at least the seventh vertebra to the tail vertebrae that's fused into the pyga style. The skull's also large and about as long as the thigh bone, as you mentioned, so with all the weird characteristics. Mm -hmm. 
the claw bone on the third digit of its finger is the longest one, and that's also different from other therizinosaurs where the second digit claw is the longest. Yeah, that's really weird. That's like having a ring finger that's longer than your middle finger, kind of. Mm-hmm. In 2021, last year, Liao Chunchu and others analyzed the skeleton of Baypiosaurus and included additional vertebrae that hadn't been described before. That's where we get that the tail had more than 30 caudal vertebrae. There were also neural spines near the front of the tail. They found three possible synapomorphies, which is a characteristic from an ancestor that's shared by its descendants. This is for Therizinosauroidea and Therizinosauridae. And that includes having a straight ulna, the arm bone, which is straight in most Therizinosaurs, but bowed in Falcarius, a Therizinosauroid. Now, most of the body for Baypiosaurus is covered in downy, feather-like fibers. It had a secondary coat of longer, more simple feathers. Those are known as elongated, broad filamentous feathers, EBFFs. <laughs> and those rose up from the downy feathers. The tail was also covered in feathers. A 2003 study defined feathers and said that Baypiosaurus didn't have true feathers, but filaments that were related to feathers. Yeah, that's a, that back to that debate of what makes a feather a feather. Mm-hmm. Some people would just call it like a type 1 or a type 2, or some people call it a proto-feather. They're calling it not a true feather. <laughs> yep. Baypiosaurus didn't fly, so the feathers might have been for display or to attract mates. Or for warmth. Maybe. They're downy. In 2009, Xing and others reported on the new feather type that was found along the skull, neck, trunk, and the forelimbs of Baypiosaurus. And they found short, slender filamentous feathers and elongated, broad filamentous feathers, those EBFFs. And those EBFFs were single, unbranched filaments. So Baypiosaurus did not use its feathers for thermal regulation. Huh. And that's based on the distribution of the feathers and morphology. So it wasn't uh, using it to keep warm. It's not covering the warm bits. Yeah. Well... They were longer than normal filamentous feathers, and they're stiff and probably hollow, at least at the base, too. Gotcha. So not useful for warming. Mm-hmm. These EBFFs were about 4 to 6 inches or 10 to 15 centimeters long, and they were broad. They're up to 0.1 inches or 0.3 centimeters wide. They're also only on parts of the head, neck, tail, and body where modern birds typically have display structures, so that's why they're thinking they're probably used for display. Now, EBFFs have also been found in the Therizinosaur Gianchangosaurus, and it may show that they were for display and were common in early Therizinosaurs. Now, based on filaments that were found on Baypiosaurus, Cetacosaurus, and some pterosaurs, it could mean that the common ancestor for them had early feathers. These first feathers may have appeared in the Middle Triassic around 235 million years ago. In 2018, Maria McNamara and others found fossilized skin flakes on Baypiosaurus, as well as Cyanornithosaurus, Microraptor, and Confuciusornis, and they looked similar to modern birds. Never thought about birds' skin flakes before. Yeah. They found corneocytes, these cells full of keratin, and compared them to birds, and they found similar cell structures, but the fossil dinosaur corneocytes were more densely packed with keratin and lacked fat or lipids, and that could mean that Baypiosaurus didn't get as warm as modern birds. Now, modern birds, they have this fatty corneocytes with loosely packed keratin so they can cool down quickly when they're flying, 
And Bapiosaurus probably didn't get as warm because it couldn't fly, so it didn't need to cool down as quickly. They also found that they, meaning Bapiosaurus, Microraptor, Confuciosaurus, and Cynornithosaurus, probably shed skin as dandruff. Bapiosaurus is a sister taxon to Falcarius, and Bapiosaurus lived in a warm, humid climate with dry seasons. The average temperatures were about 50 degrees Fahrenheit or 10 degrees Celsius. Bapiosaurus lived alongside Janchungasaurus, which may mean that Therizinosaurus commonly coexisted and just had different feeding strategies so they could get along. Other dinosaurs that lived around the same time and place include Delong, Euteranus, Cynornithosaurus, Cotopteryx, Confuciusornis, Satakasaurus, and Dongbei Titan. And other animals that lived around the same time and place included snails, slugs, shrimp, insects, fish, birds, mammals, and lizards. So pretty diverse. And now for our fun fact. Am I saying it like you? This is weird. I almost read it. <laughs> I forgot that you were doing the fun fact. <laughs> I forgot I was doing it too. And I was like, oh no, there's more. So this is from the paper about that dinosaur embryo that we talked about earlier. Baby Ying Liang. And as promised, this has to do with the tucking process. The tucking process in birds turns out there's three phases to it. There's the pre-tucking phase, where the beak points towards the pole, and it's in between the hind limbs and feet, with the back curling at the blunt part where that air cell is. And that's what it looks like with the oviraptorid oviraptorosaur embryo. That was the first phase? Yeah. Where it's bent, like, fully in half? Yeah. Huh. That's pre-tucking. Then there's the tucking phase where the head moves in a way so that the beak and the skull point inward and toward the right wing. Okay, so it like puts its head under its wing? Mm-hmm. And then last is the post-tucking phase where the beak and head are tucked under the right wing and then move toward the torso where the beak gets positioned behind the right shoulder. It seems like I know they use their beak to get out of the egg Seems really difficult when they're spending all this time getting their beak farther and farther jammed into their torso and like their shoulder. <laughs> well, apparently this works really well for birds because it helps to stabilize them and it makes the head and the beak more effective and efficient when hatching. And if they're not in this tucked posture, it actually makes them less likely to hatch and more likely to die. Hmm. So they must be able to get out of that posture when they're hatching. Yeah, there's more room to spread out then. It's like the treat at the end. You're out of the egg. You get to spread out. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> and that wraps up this episode of I Know Dino. Thank you so much for listening. Again, if you want all the links to our sources from this episode, then check out our show notes at inodino.com. Thanks again, and until next time. Good day.